Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the East German Fashion History Podcast. Today we will be discussing the second half of 50s fashion GDR style, where I'll cover everything from 1956 to 1960, with a special glimpse into Zabilla's debut issue in August of 1956. I've translated this to the best of my abilities. Now this week there will be no bonus episode of Got a Hot Minute, which features recommended weekend reads, as that will resume on the following week. And as always, I'll be providing key sources and images to accompany this episode on the blog by Thursday, which will be provided in a link to the episode description. So to rewind a bit, we ended in December of 1955, where Ellie Schmidt, the director of the Institute for Culture and Dress, or the IBK, asked the Ministry of Light Industry to create a new magazine. And that's how Zabilla was born. Now this was to report on fashion from around the world, including cities such as Prague, Warsaw, Florence, Vienna, Moscow, New York, Beijing, London and Paris, and it was also a platform for designers to, of the IBK to showcase their work. So we start in August of 1956 with the opening letter of the magazine, and it mentions how it got its name from Zibels, or Roman prophetesses, as this publication was really supposed to invoke a new era of East German fashion. It emphasized the excitement anticipation for a moment, stressing that we, Zabilla, are excited for you to be a part of this moment and tell you everything about the latest in fashion in the GDR. In a personal note from Schmidt, she stresses that it's important that you make connections beyond our borders and impress upon them the work of the IBK while also cultivating international fashion. This had also been a drive in the East Bloc countries as well. There is also a poem from an imaginary Zabilla, or the Zabilla, if she were a person, and she says that she is your friend. She's your guide to good, fa noteworthy fashion, as taste is really her specialty. Her goal is to make everyone happy, and she hopes everyone will speak light highly of her. She declares that she is not just a modest wallflower daydreaming in the quiet because she loves to travel and collect treasures and her goal is really to enrich you. She asks in this poem, do I have your trust because reputation means a lot to me and you can always rely on me as I am my own creation. As every woman, I love compliments and so we understand each other. She ends the poem by saying that we will see each other soon again. Um, I will make myself pretty in all the beautiful styles and want to come to you as a surprise. Until then, I'll be thinking of you. Now, a lot can be said about this. Alone in this poem of uh, Zabilla introducing herself to the reader, one can find parallel themes to the GDR's mission of keeping up appearances and a good reputation to be worldly and interested yet grounded in their mission, spreading the good word about 
Zibilla is indicative to the strength and health of East Germany. She is your friend. You can rely on her. The GDR is your friend. You can rely on them. But in the end, this is about fashion. And as Zibilla says herself, she's not a wallflower. She's daring, elegant, and tasteful. Very much unlike the growing complaints citizens had of the East German clothing industry that we've seen with drab textiles, expensive, and oftentimes products were very inaccessible. So if you trust Zibilla, you can trust that industry. The magazine had interesting challenges of developing the sartorial culture of the GDR through showing the latest designs of the IBK while also reporting on fashion through non-capitalist countries. Feminine elegance was its credo. That was to serve working women. And by working women, I'm specifying that as women that worked in offices or were in the slightly higher classes. But we And we have to make a distinction here because we also see that Zabilla really tries to reach out and give visibility to women working in factories, farms, and um, on the industrial side of, of various sectors. And we'll get back into those different professions and how they show it, shine light into those in a bit. Now, if we go into the first few pages, we have the table of contents, which included and says a lot about the design of this. September loves suit jackets, and this features all the latest suit jackets from the IBK. The second article, another article was what we saw in Paris, which I'll report on in depth. Um, Berlin wears saris. Take note, uh, a letter on day dresses from the state-owned dress industry. Cocktail dresses in the shadow of old masters. Asian-inspired notes are still in fashion, handbags from Vienna, the magic of lace. So this is just a general overview of what you would find in these ta- the table of contents. So in the first article to ever birth this magazine, September Love Suit Jackets, it's a short spread. It features a variety of black and white images um, featuring the latest suits available from the IBK. These ensembles feature jersey dresses, wool suits with nutria muffs, olive suits with narrow mid-calf skirts with uh, with gold-brown accents. The next article, which was a bit more glamorous, Via Zare in Paris, or What We Saw in Paris, this is a reportage um, where we really get to see the worldly side of our friend's Zabila. Ellie Schmidt goes on to report about the new haute couture collections. She begins the article by talking about Parisians and their unparalleled taste. She states that in Paris, you really feel a change in temperament of the Parisian. The city rarely allowed the tasteless to walk around. She claims that whether you're at the Champs-Élysées, the Place de Opera, the or the Latin Quarter, it's impossible to find someone who isn't wearing Dior or Foth. At least this was her perception. But again, this mirrors the idea that national identity and pride is binded to fashion in some sort of way. Schmidt emphasizes that while the GDR absolutely encourages designers to see shows from capitalist countries, not just their own, and also 
East, Eastern Bloc countries, um, but to not just to copy them, um, to take inspiration, but also to aff- affirm everyone that because we as the GDR have talent, we don't need to, to copy things top to top to toe. The article goes on to report about Dior and his tulip tulip line featuring large floral applique, embroidery, organza, as well as Ampere silhouettes featuring sheer chiffon and Japanese-inspired textiles that evoke a softness. All of this is completed by matching accessories, naturally. It's the 50s. And Schmidt also goes on, goes further goes on to talk about design, other collections she saw, such as Jacques Heim and um, Jacques Foth shows. There are no photo- photographs, um, but there are illustrations from Beringer Hillenhagen. The next article, or one of the more important articles, is Rendezvous in Warsaw. This reports on the seventh international fashion convention where the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Poland, and Hungary all met in front of the backdrop of the beautifully modern city of Warsaw to exhibit the latest fashion creations for the Werktätige Frau, or the working woman, and by this we mean a woman working in an office or of a higher class. The magazine features, a, there's a strawberry print dress with a wide skirt and that with a matching jacket. Among that, we have patterned shirt dresses of the same silhouette. We then have Zum Diktat bitte, or please take note. And this features dresses from the state-owned industry. And then there is a really interesting feature on ribbons and Krakow uh, Benda, or these, these ribbons from Krakow. Um, and this editorial features dresses made entirely out of, entirely out of or trimmed with uh, traditional folk florals. Think, folk, the, think the floral flourishes you might find at Oktoberfest. One of the captions goes on to say that these are radiant with color and compares it really to the brilliance of a stained glass window from a Polish church. Odd comparison. But it reports that the Soviet Union has for years been an endless reservoir of of carrying on these traditional folk motifs. And you can see snapshots of these folk, folk motifs and the ribbons at West, from everywhere from West Berlin to Paris and especially in Italy. One of these dresses was a very colorful, had a very colorful palette of rose, violet, blue, and turquoise in a floral f- flourished ribbon. And it was so popular that apparently it was ordered a dozen times by someone from Hollywood, California. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Zabilla really had to try and find a balance between celebrating the elevated fashion line of the German Fashion Institute, and which represented the East German fashion industry, as well as what bringing visibility to the more proletariat working class, working classes, women that worked in factories, farming, and industrial sectors where they were heavily em- employed. And one such instance of where they 
<clears throat> attempted to do this was with a letter, it uh, was a letter to the editor and it was a woman from Bitterfeld and it was entitled Help from the Ash Pits. The letter exposed the, judger, the drudgery of working in, in a chemical plant with the inescapable soot, dirt, and pollution. The writer says that when we think of a beautiful day and wearing a beautiful dress, it makes us happy, but it also makes us sad because we would get it dirty. Can you design a wetsuit to go over this dress? So they would answer these, these letters or they would, they would definitely feature them in their, um, in their magazines. All the while that Zabilla makes its debut, um, we still have other parts of the industry. Heinz Bormann, who was the Red Dior we had discussed in the past two episodes, joins a state partnership which gives him the agency for more technological advancement. Bormann goes on to show his collections in Leipzig at the Leipzig Trade Fair in Beirut, Stockholm, and Cairo. And at this point, 48% of his salon is state-owned while the 61% is owned by him. So that just about sums up some of the bigger events of 1956. In 1957, for some context, um, Yves Saint Laurent Laurent opens up his, or takes over Dior at the young age of 19. So this this is what's really the biggest thing happening in fashion in the West. Meanwhile, in East Berlin, um, there are plans to set um, a store in place called Sibylle on the Friedrichstraße in Berlin. And it's supposed to be, quote, similar to our international sisters of the West uh, called Boutiques. And this didn't actually open until 1958. Now, while the publication Sibylle had sung high praises for this boutique featuring a rather decadent interior of large glass walls and Sputnik chandeliers. The proletariat-centered magazine Frau von Heute attacked it as expensive with just fashionable sack dresses. So this dialogue is going to continue on. And I will, I have a wonderful image, a wonderful color image of what the interior of the store looks like and I'll post that to the blog. So in 1957, you, this is also the year you had the beginning of subcultures popping, uh, popping up, namely the beginning of youth culture, known for their wide polka, polka dot petticoat skirts or capri pants, and for men, black leather or denim jackets with American-style t-shirts underneath. This was the beginning of the teenager in East Germany. And it was that year that the city of Leipzig had organized a rock and roll dance competition provided by the Leipzig Orchestra Broadcast, Broadcast Orchestra. And I got this fact from Schick in der DDR, which I had mentioned before. And I was interesting because the way it was translated was it had mentioned this event and said that even though this was an event that was new and fresh, obviously there was in no way, this in no way didn't prevent the government officials from intervening. Whatever that means would be interesting to know, but you always had that state-owned, that, that governmental presence regardless. In 1958, Sibylle featured the editorial U-Bahnhof 
um, Bahnhofstrasse. Um, this was basically this featured this basically featured models at the a subway stop uh, called Dimitrovstrasse subway station. And this is one of the first examples of when Zabilla started to take fashion into the streets of Berlin. Along with this theme of taking fashion into the streets, Zabilla also picked the this at the same issue a more comical editorial and this was called it was called Kumpels Kohlen und Capriolen which is very very roughly translated to our buddies coal and capriciousness this featured actual coal miners mocking and playfully posing with models in wearing the latest spring pastel suit jackets from the German fashion industry institute and we have to remember now at all this time you still had a good amount of trade and commerce and collaboration amongst other countries. So not only is Zabilla focusing on taking fashion to the streets, they're doing these quixotic reports of going of going to visit and do an editorial with coal miners, but they're also focusing, they're also looking at fashion from a global, East German fashion from a global perspective. In their May issue, um, Berliner Chic in Aller Welt, or Berlin Chic All Over the World, focuses on the VEB's elegant workshops that had traveled to Düsseldorf, Cairo, and Helsinki. That same month, the DDR Review has an article featuring called Berlin Fashions in Helsinki, and that features textiles, fur, and clothing designs that the German Fashion Institute presented at a textile fair in Finland, saying, quote, their efforts were well rewarded for models as Northern Lights, Polar, and Fjord, and many delightful hats were received with great enthusiasm by Finnish women. This was also a big year because it marked not only editorial for mag not only editorially for magazines such as Zbilla, but this also was the inauguration of Berlin Fashion Week or Berliner Modewoche. This was a huge undertaking. It was held at the Berlin Sports Hall with 20,000 people in attendance. This was considered an achievement show to express the state of development of the GDR's garment industry and, quote, directly politically influenced the consciousness of the visitor. This was also a great, um, aspirationally, they were really looking for networking and they wanted to have all parts of the garment industry network with each other, as well as have consumers and customers see all of their achievements thus far. Citizens could meet designers and see how dresses were made. And above all, there were also a slew of fashion shows. And I'm just going to read some of these themes and titles to you, which retrospectively seems a bit dated, but I think at that time seemed quite informative. And you can tell that they're really trying to take an authoritative voice into creating an East German fashion culture. So some of these titles were well-dressed in a good mood. Does your husband dress in a modern fashion? There were also lectures on topics like small fashionable transformations with great effect and to each type a suitable haircut. The event concluded with a high-class fashion ball with tickets that were worth 20 Deutschmarks. Overall, it received mixed press. Um, one magazine 
had complained that there was a lack of availability of the products, which we'll see in the following years, that is no longer the case. It becomes less of a cultural drive and more of an economic drive. So in 1959, we still have a series of ongoing issues. One of them is the imitation and copying of Western fashion. And that, that became quite blatant as a lot of, a lot of, clo- a lot of Eastern clothes ended up just being knockoffs of Western fashion. But party leaders had really felt that they were trapped in the cycle of catch-up as the SED general secretary, Walter Ulbricht, remarks that, quote, when pointy shoes or pointed shoes are in one year, one year later, we make pra- propaganda for the shoes. Meanwhile, in Italy and France, broad shoes are generally in fashion. We just can't keep up with running behind. And this is really a great quote indicative of some of the problems we'll see going down the road. At the same time, the SED, or the Sozialistische Einheitspartei, which we've mentioned before, promotes the standardization of industrial branches But they also realize that fashion is different because, quote, fashion in a socialist society may not be a homogenization, but must rather be diverse. Now, this was a reaction to the regime's recent solution of a radical standardization of fashion done through what was called the Baukastenprinzip or the construction kit principle. This had generally been used on a lot of other industrial branches, and they wanted to apply this to the garment industry. With this concept, you had new models were created with a variety of standardized cuts and silhouette. There were eight standard silhouettes, and and designers were tasked to create the most varied variations. So the patterns were already set. You just had to add your own creativity to it. And that was that really encapsulates what this Baukasten principle or construction kit, pr- construction kit principle was about. On the textile textile engineering front, and we had talked about this in a previous episode, Dederon, um, which is was the new name for Erlon, which was also known as nylon, and Dederon. If it's it's spelled D-E-D-R-O-N, it's supposed to the way it's pronounced is like D-D-R, so it gives it a specific type of branding that is unique to the GDR or the DDR. All the while, you had in Western capitalist fashion, you had ballerinas, capri pants, and jeans are really big are really beginning their triumphal march into fashion as youth culture takes more of a presence, especially in West Germany. And of course, because this is before the wall, the GDR is aware of this and seeing this and seeing this being copied. However, the GDR stays loyal or, you know, attempts to stay loyal to its conservative femininity of the early 50s. And you'll see this with a lot of the other international fashion shows. And by international fashion shows, I'm specifically talking about East Bloc shows that they really tried to maintain that same level of conservatism across the the board and um, throughout various countries. 
finally in this year, you had East Germany's Red Dior, Heinz Bormann, moves his company to Magdeburg. And I think it's important to note that we're going to continue to follow his career and where where his power lies and where his distribution and visibility, where that, where that changes. So by the end of the 1950s, party leaders hoped to make fashion according to plan, and they really wanted to control it with this, as I said before, Baukastenprinzip. And they accused designers of isolating themselves in the ephemeral aesthetics and away from the everyday world of planning, production, and distribution. And again, as we mentioned last episode, that's not how fashion works. Fashion is fickle and it's ever-changing. So this is, of course, naturally uh, paradoxical. Meanwhile, as you had this, consumers' needs and wishes always seem to be different than what's available with the, with the raw materials. And this is, you know, 1959. Again, this is before the wall. So they, they have families in West Germany. They have friends in West Germany. They're seeing what they're wearing, what, they're available, what they have available, and what, what, um, what's available in East Germany. 1960. So before we go into the 60s, I'd like to start off with a really great account I found in Schick in der DDR, and it really challenges some of the misconceptions the West uh, had had about East German clothing, being an endless assortment of gray, tasteless, and homogenous clothes. So we're going to meet Ulrike Zuchi. No, it's a tongue twister. Um, she was a textile engineer, and this is in the 60s, so she, she was in her 20s in the 60s. And she had a job, a husband, and a child, which was the ideal example of the GDR woman. She was living in Karl Marxstadt, uh, also now it's today known as Chemnitz. And she had worked, she always wanted to work in fashion, but, and not just understand how to best use their fabrics. She, sidebar, eventually ended up going into fashion. Now, in her life, she, rec- she recounts living in the GDR. She felt that she was more emancipated than her mother and her grandmother. She had her own money and an active life. And she, as anyone else, wanted to be chic and dress modern and wanted all the, th- all the pra- practical clothing that was versatile and easy to combine. She didn't necessarily want to have a, war- a new wardrobe every season. That was sort of, you know, her needs and how she wanted to have them met. And I feel like that really fit her. She wasn't, you know, an aspiring fashion editor or in today's word, like fashionista that needed a new wardrobe every season, which was unrealistic. And I think it was unrealistic for women, regardless if in the West or in the East. She'd said that, quote, when I was, when I went to the West before the wall came down, and saw the masses of clothes that they had, I thought they don't need what we produce and we make so many exports. It was like a culture shock. And we may not have had a lot, but what we had, we made the most out of. Now, Zuchi goes and stresses that a lot of the fabrics they had produced had actually had a lot of brilliant colors and a lot of wonderful fabrics, but the majority of that would have to be exported to the West, which never really got sold, according to her. She goes on to say that whenever I read that 
the GDR only has conformity and unimaginative gray clothes, I can get so mad. That person never lived here and probably and probably didn't notice that there are distinct differences from city to country, from Mecklenburg to industrial areas in the South. So she's really looking at it from, from a perspective of, of what was available and that there, there were differences, de- there were definitely de- regional differences. I don't think they can be compared to what you had in the West. So by 1960, there was a large editorial shift by Zabilla in leaving officially. This is where they really leave the studio and venture into the streets. The magazine also continued to feature, as to be expected, reporting on spring and fall patterns, fashion reports, art and theater reviews. And it also took on more sensitive topics, but with an indifferent attitude, like with the article about, it was called, quote, teenager. This broke down East German youth culture defined by leather jackets, rock and roll, and jazz music. And they lived without abandon, on the go, blazing down the Frankfurter Allee in a bike or motorcycle. While continuing to report on East Germany's ever-evolving sartorial culture, Sibylla was also tasked with addressing the various complaints they received about the clothing industry and the German fashion institute, which at this point had been renamed from the IBK or the Institute for Clothing Culture to the, the, the DMI or the GFI, the German Fashion Institute. And I will put references and those terms and terminologies and translations in the blog. So because they had this interesting task, it was, it was really the way they took was a center lane and that was both safe and ineffective by saying that even though they were getting these complaints about product availability, the rising prices, which we'd mentioned the last episode, the magazine continued to stress that it was just a fashion guide. At this point, uh, Berliner Modewoche, or Berlin Fashion Week, eventually shifted from being a huge cultural event to really an economic opportunity, as officials finally started selling accessories, jewelry, clothes, cosmetics, dresses and suits, and reported that sales had doubled from 1.2 million in the spring of that year to the fall. By the fall of 1961, Berlin Fashion Week um, acquired, earned a total of three, three million, three million Deutsche marks, East German marks. By 1960 of October, Berlin also started to focus on the idea of high quality apparel. At this time, you also had tensions rising in the East and in the West and just in general. And I think they also knew that you had a lot of, obviously there was a lot of crossover, a lot of East Germans were buying West German goods. So the German Fashion Institute and the VVB Konfektion wanted to create 11 specialized stores in major cities that offered, quote, original models that were to be, these were to be sort of like fashion houses. Um, and this was specifically for GDR's population of the intelligentsia and people of a higher class with a bigger buying power. And because they wanted these stores to reflect a French influence, they would give them names like Yvonne, Jeannette, Chic, 
pinguine, cavalier, piccolo, charmant, or madeleine. And another major development in the East German textile industry and in the East German fashion industry was the was the development of prelana. Now, prelana is a synthetic fiber, and it was produced by Agravolf, um, which was which produced photographic film and magnetic tape, and they use polyacrylic threads, commonly known as orlan and produced that into what was called prolana. So this was a this was a huge shift and this was a huge win for the textile industry. All the while between 1916-61 you still see hundreds of thousands of East Germans continuing to resettle into West Germany. And as the Cold War intensifies, officials you know are asked to take take offense to this and, you know, had even asked to create their own trends and not relying on the West. Now this becomes even more apparent in next week's episode where we'll go into the construction of Berlin, the Berlin Wall and how the fashion press reacted or didn't react. And that's it for today. Next week, we'll, do a di- we'll dig deep into the rise of the Berlin Wall and how that affected the East German fashion industry. Now, I'd like to give out a very special shout out to my friends at the, the Canadian Fashion Scholars, a wonderful program. And they, and I want to thank you for your support in listing this podcast on the site, on your site. Also, be sure to check out um, all the visual reference, my visual reference guide and blog for this episode, which will be posted on Thursday. Danke and see you next week.